or after today, I'm planning to take a two-week recess from the Song of Solomon series to do a couple of seasonal seasonal messages, uh, one on the Advent and one on the New Year. For our newer folks in the church, I want to mention that our session does not follow the church calendar because we do not believe that we or any other church leader who are but men of clay have the authority to create or institute holy days. Jesus did not institute days to commemorate events in his life on an annual basis in the new covenant beyond the weekly Sabbath, which was changed to the first day of the week since that was the day that he rose from the dead. He called us to observe a weekly remembrance of his cross and of his resurrection as well as of the creation of the world, which was transferred to that day, those other things being much more significant, even creation, to the first, so it translated to the first day of the week, which is the day he rose from the dead. He apparently um, considered that that is sufficient for us in the new covenant. His apostles did not take it upon themselves to institute annual days either, nor were they given the authority to do it if Jesus had not done so. They, they only commanded the things that he had set forth for them. So if such days had been permitted, if it was permissible for them to institute those days, and if such days are necessi- uh, of necessity for the people of God to, to benefit and to thrive, as many claim, then surely the apostles would have not failed to institute holy days from the beginning of new creation worship, or not holy days, but they did have the Sabbath, but to institute the, um, the days that were annual days, if they were part of something that we need. The, the time, for example, that to institute Christmas should not have been centuries later, but as soon as New Testament worship was initiated, as soon as the new covenant worship began. All the holy days in the Old Testament were instituted from the time of the event as annual uh, commemorations that followed after the event itself, like the Passover. You didn't wait for 200 years and say, oh, let's, let's remember the Passover about you. But it was appointed at that time that this would be done on an annual basis. So in the case of Jesus, such annual holy days, if God wanted us to observe them, would have been established at the time of the resurrection. Maybe during the 40 days that Jesus, when he instructed his disciples about the kind of worship, how, what worship was to look like in the new covenant. God has chosen to have things much simpler in the new covenant. What we have is what we know he wants is what the apostles did under the new covenant. So he wants us to have it with the new, under the new covenant without all the special holy days and ceremonies that go along with such holy days and that were prominent in the old covenant worship. It seems that now that Jesus has come, the focus is on communion with him, the basis of the gospel and with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through him each Lord's Day. When it comes to determining what ought to be done in worship, the question should always be asked, who appointed these things? By what authority is this being done? And unless the answer is God, 
then they are things that should not be done. When God's people have added to his worship, his objection is always, who required this at your hand? I never commanded these things. The institution of worship that God has not instituted was the, this, by the sin of Jeroboam. Jeroboam instituted worship that God had not instituted, and that was called the sin of Jeroboam. And he is therefore labeled as the one who caused Israel to sin because he appointed worship that God had not appointed. And keep in mind, it was not worship of another god or other gods. It was worship of the one true God, but through means that God had not appointed with the, the calf thrones that he had set up, the calves that would uh, they used in the pagan worship often, that they would have an image of their God seated on the calf as a kind of a throne. And, of course, they did that uh, in the time of Moses with the golden calf. And then Jeroboam set up the calves in Israel and said, we worship the Lord here, Jehovah. He said, worship the true God. And he didn't put an image just like they did in the time of Aaron on top of the calf. Now, the calf itself was an image, but they were uh, worshiping as, that was, as if that was God's throne. And they were bringing in their own ceremonies besides the ones that God had appointed. Nevertheless, after saying all that, next Sunday I do plan to do a sermon about the coming of Jesus Christ since this is something that is on the minds of so many at this time of year. Now, why would I do that? Well, it's similar to when I preach on COVID, for example, at various times of the year when there's something that happens that way that's related to that that is very much on people's minds. But as far as having special services or ceremonies related to the church calendar, that we will not do because God has not given us authority to do that. I can preach on any subject that people are thinking about, but uh, I'm certainly at liberty to do that as a minister of the gospel. But I'm not at liberty to institute a Advent wreath or, or, or something like that that we all would participate in in our worship. He is the Lord of worship. We are not. Now enough of that. This Sunday, presently, we will continue our series in the Song of Solomon. Let's think about where we've been with this. For the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at chapter 7, where the bridegroom, who represents Christ in the Song of Solomon, okay, the bridegroom, the beloved, as he's called, represents Christ in the Song of Solomon, where he expresses his delight in his bride, who represents the believing church in the song. Okay, she is one bride made up of many members, and in the song, you know, she is the, the woman that uh, has the beloved. Though so he praises, we saw a couple of weeks ago, he praises her qualities in verses 1 through 5 with descriptions that refer to her body parts, not with regard to her physical beauty, but with regard to her spiritual qualities. For example... She is said to have a nose like a watchtower facing toward Damascus. Now, this is not a reference to she has a big gangly nose on, the, on her face that, is, uh, that stands out in front of her, but it's a reference to her vigilance to guard against enemies. Uh, Syria, where Damascus was, they had their enemies, and her vigilance to keep watch 
So that the true bride of Christ does not want to go after false teaching and that sort of thing or or that which would come and spoil her relationship with the Lord. Jesus delights to see his redeemed people with a watchtower nose, with uh, sniffing out the evil and turn toward where the enemies would come to guard against that. Adam didn't do that in the garden and it brought about the fall. He did not guard the garden. So we have a tendency to follow the world, the flesh, and the devil, but we stand guard against encroachment. After praising her for that and many other particulars, then in verse 6 through 9, we saw how he then spoke of how greatly he desires to have her and to embrace her in love. He compared her to a stately palm tree with date, a date palm with fruit hanging on it and declared his resolution to climb her and embrace her as his beloved wife. It's a picture of a man making love to his wife, representing, his, representing the spiritual relationship that Jesus has with us. He promises that he will have communion with us, which he expresses his love and delight to us in, in the, using this imagery of a man's a husband's love for his wife, showing his delight in us. That's the best illustration that, that can be employed to show the richness and the strength of his love toward his people. Last week, we took a look at verse 10, where the bride, the church, hearing these words of ardent affection and desire from him, responds by saying, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. We're going to start with a further look at these words and then consider how we, the church, respond to him by welcoming his embrace. Okay, having heard him say that he wants to come and embrace his palm tree, he wants to uh, take a hold of us, he wants to express his love, manifest his love to us, we say, come. That's basically what the, this whole section we're looking at today is from verse 10 to the end, verse 13. So let's read now Song of Solomon chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. Remember that we read the word of God. We read this text of scriptures because we, re, we know that this is the word of God. It's God breathed and we have things here for us that come from God so that we can learn of him. So that's why we read the scriptures and preach the scriptures. So here is the word of God. Song of Solomon 7, 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. And there we end the reading of God's holy and infallible word that abides forever. Now let's begin, as I told you that we would, by looking at verse 10 again and kind of reviewing that a little bit and maybe going a little farther with it than we did. We just briefly touched on it last time. So after hearing of His, the the bridegroom's delight in us, we, his church, conclude that 
I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Let's look at each of these two parts of this conclusion that we reach after hearing what he had to say about us and to us. That I am my beloved's. That's the first thing. Think of it. You are his. Not just anyone, but his. The one who is the most high God. The maker of heaven and earth. The Lord of glory. The one who has no beginning and no ending. The holy one. The judge of all the earth. The Lord of lords and the king of kings. You belong to him. That is remarkable. Think of it. He has taken you as his bride. We mere creatures made of dust and ashes. Even that is significant if we were completely pure and holy. That he should take that which is made of the dust to be his bride. We though also members of Adam's fallen race, of those who are made to have communion with God and who by our own wickedness forsook that communion. We, the one whose sin makes us obnoxious and defiled before his eyes so that we ought to be rejected according to justice. He has taken us to be his own, to be his bride even, To be the one that he loves and cherishes forever. And it will be forever because he will not die. And if he does not die, then we will live forever. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so he will sustain us. Though we die, yet we will live. He, the one who is able to love and knows how to love better than anyone else, is the one who has taken us as his own possession. He has pardoned our sin. He has purchased us with his own blood to pay for our sin. He has done it by bearing the penalty of our sin. The debt that was ours and the payment was his. In taking us to be his bride, he has delivered us from our corruption as well, giving us the Holy Spirit so that we were made willing to come when he called us instead of ignoring his call. It's all of his grace that we are his bride. Now we belong where we ought to belong. Our identity is not based on our feelings or on the desires of our flesh, but on belonging to him. That's who you are as the bride of Christ. You're the one who belongs to him. We will be protected and provided for by him. What a pleasant inheritance we have. We have been brought into his house to be his bride, to live as the matron of his house. He will direct us in the beautiful ways of his family where love is the greatest commandment. He will be kind to us and he will cherish us in the way that a husband ought to be kind to his wife and cherish her. We belong to him, brothers and sisters, And then the second part of our conclusion, based on what he has said, is this. His desire is toward me. This is also remarkable. That means that he actually delights in us. He finds us to be attractive. We are a new creation in him. 
And he wants to be with us. He wants to show us his love. And he wants our love to come to him. He, the most high God, the maker of heaven and earth, actually desires us and is pleased with us. He has told us that we are his palm tree and that our breasts are like its clusters and that he is going to climb us and embrace us in his love. He uses the love of a husband to illustrate the desire that he has for us, his church. Now, if this is true, the conclusion that we reached here is his bride after hearing what he says of us, and it is true, if the Lord of glory wants to be with us, what else can we say but come? Come and be with me. Come and go with me. The rest of the chapter is our welcoming response to him. Does he want to be with us? We say, come away with me, my beloved. Does he want to look at our fruit? We say, come with me and behold my fruit. See my fruit. Does he want to receive our love? We say, come away with me and I will give you my love. That's a summary of what we have here. We will look at each of these three things one at a time as we move through this passage. So first, does he want to be with us? We say, come away with me. You can see the words in verse 11 and 12. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. This is an invitation from us to him for him to come with us when we come apart to worship. We ask him to come with us whenever we come apart to read God's word and to pray in private, in our families, and in public, in in church, in our church services. We say, come with me, my beloved. It's the goal to have communion with our risen Lord when we do these things. I know that we're quite capable of the folly of coming to God's word and reading his word the way a student would read a textbook or something like that and to burn off mindless prayers before him that are just vain repetition when it is not at all our intent to have communion with him. How often do we do that? We don't, we don't really respond to him when we come to his word. We're learning facts and we're, we're, we're marking dates and thinking about, not that there's wrong in, in doing that in itself, but we're, we're not coming to meet with him. We're not engaged with him as a living savior. As we read and hear his word, you see, we are to respond to him, to engage with him. We're before his face to have communion with him. At least that's what we want to do as his bride. So we ask him to come. You can see the desire to have him come apart with us in the words of the allegory here. It says verse 11, Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. It is a request to her lover to get apart with her beloved in the allegory, to get apart with her beloved who who said he wanted to be with her. The wealthy people like Solomon had their fields and their vineyards separate from their houses. 
so that visiting them was a kind of a getaway. Some of these fields and vineyards were near enough to visit every day if they wanted. Others required an overnight trip. You can see that she includes requests here to be with him in all different ways, in the more extent, including the more extended times when she speaks of wanting to go and lodge with him in a villages. So to go to one of the places that's farther away and to stay away with him for a time. So what do we have? We have our daily prayer and Bible reading and our personal devotions and our family worship. We do these things. But we also have our weekly observance of the Lord's Day where we come apart for a whole day, a day and an evening, morning and evening. We also do well to have even more extended times when we come apart for fasting and prayer. So it is so important for us to get apart with our beloved, to come away with him. Every couple who has a good relationship spends time, concentrated time together. They, they know that they will drift apart if they don't spend time together. They know that they need time with each other apart from other things if their relationship is to flourish and grow. And besides that, they want to be together. You can't keep them apart. Look at some of the young couples in our church. It's, you can't separate them. They want to be together. And so it should be with the older couples. You see how she wants him to get up early to the vineyards with her. She's eager She doesn't want something to come and and interfere and interrupt the time that they would be able to go. We see this with Jesus who customarily rose, we're told often that he rose a great while before day, while it was still dark, to go and commune with his heavenly father. It is a priority, something to do before all the distractions start to come, before the sun is even up. Other things have to be put aside for it. Six days, we're told, of our weekly day. Six days, you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work. It is a day for communion with the living God. We need to consecrate time each day. And we need to have, uh, preferably in the morning, time in the morning and the evening, to get away with our Lord And we need to consecrate the whole Sabbath day to be with him. But indeed, if he does not come with us when we set aside these times, when we come apart for church or for private reading and prayer, then we've missed the whole point. I mean, when God was angry with Israel for worshiping the golden calf, he at first promised that when Moses prayed, he he did concede, he promised that, He would spare them from destruction. He wouldn't wipe them out as he first said he would do. But he declared that he was not going to go with them because he said they're so stubborn and stiff-necked that I might destroy them if I go with them. I don't don't want to go with them because of their wickedness. But Moses would not hear of that. Moses knew that God's presence was the only thing that made Israel unique from the other nations. It's the only thing that makes us unique as God's people. In Exodus thirty-three fifteen, Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, then don't bring us up from here. 
I don't even want to go to any promised land if you're not going to be there, if God is not going to be with us. He says, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, that we're reconciled to you if you do not go with us, except you go with us? The bride does not want to go away to the fields and to the lodge to lodge in the villages and to go to the vineyard without him that would be there would be that would be pointless the whole thing is is that she's going to get away with him that should be our attitude about worship it's not just bible study it's not just getting together with our friends at church it's not just about singing and releasing ourselves and by, by lifting up prayers to make, our, make us feel better about things or something. No, the whole point is to meet with our Lord, to have communion with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who brings us to the Father by the Holy Spirit. Those who are faithful in these duties can testify to their importance. The elders of this church have sought to encourage all of you in these practices. We have encouraged personal prayer and Bible study. We have sought to make daily family worship a hallmark of our church, where fathers minister the word to their wives and their children each day, as was done before Sunday school ever took over. And as for the Lord's Day, one practical advantage of not following the church calendar is that those who do have a tendency is that those who do have a tendency to elevate the days of human institution among the days of God's institution. For example, we saw a few years ago when Christmas was on Sunday, people said, "Oh, we can't go to church because it's Christmas." What? That's the Lord's day. Which which is more important, the day instituted by man or the day instituted by God? It has often been my observation that the more emphasis is placed on the church calendar, the less is placed on the Sabbath day. Those who are big on church calendar will often neglect the Sabbath and they don't look at it. Their days are more important than the days that God has appointed. In any case, we, the bride of Christ, desire to come apart with him. It delights us to get away with our Lord and to meet him. If you do not find delight in communing with him and attending his ordinances, you need to examine your heart and see what has made you so cold. We saw the bride being cold earlier in uh, the Song of Solomon. It's easy, you you see, it can be easier to be stirred up by the, the days that we make where we have all of our little traditions that we do for this day and that day and the other day But we need to be stirred up by Christ, by him. He is to be the focus. I'll have more to say about that later. But we have seen in the Song of Solomon the times of negligence on our part, as well as the times of just dryness for no particular reason that we know. It can be because we neglect, but also just when it's just dried up. But it is our duty, you see, to do what this says here, to continue to say, Lord, Come with me. Come with me to worship. Come away with me. Inhabit the praises of your people. Meet with me, Lord. Visit me at the communion table. Visit me at church. Visit me in my devotions. Visit me in family worship. Visit us. We look to him to do this. 
Okay, so this is the first part of our response to him. Does he want to be with us? I say again, we say, come away with me, my beloved. We have also seen that he wants to look upon us. Remember, he spoke of that to, to see his garden, to see the fruit that has, is, is growing there. So that brings us to the second part of our response to him. Does he want to look at our fruit? We say, come with me and see my fruit. Behold my fruit. We have seen all along the way in the Song of Solomon that the, the, the bride, we the bride, are his garden. Thus, when we say to him in verse 12, let us get up early to the vineyards, let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom, we're asking him to help us to examine new growth that has come to us as his bride by his grace. Is there new growth coming? Is there some new fruit coming? In John 15, he says that he is the vine and that we, and that, uh, we are the branches. His father is the vine dresser. Now, now that we are married to him, we're able to bring forth things in our lives that are pleasing to him and to his father through our union with him. We have seen that he loves to come and see the fruit that is in our garden, that is growing in his garden, and to enjoy that fruit. So we're asking him here to come and look at the fruit and to examine the fruit and to help us to see what is growing there, to help us discern what is good and what is not. This is what we call self-examination in Scripture. Self-examination we speak of especially with the Lord's table, but it is a part of our private worship, our family worship, and our coming to church in general. The whole thing it is inseparable. Uh, examination is insep- an inseparable part of being with Jesus, the Lord of glory. What happens to everyone when they come before the Lord of glory? They are exposed. If they come before him as the living God, then there are things that are shown about them. When we read his word or we hear his word, we hear sermons. And when we do this in his presence, then his word and spirit search us out. If we do it in a numb and mindless, senseless way, then it just goes right by. There's no conviction. There's no awareness. There's no responsiveness. It's just empty. We rejoice, though, also in the new growth when we come to him, in the blossoms and the buds that are there. There should always be new growth in our lives as believers. Self-examination is not good when we try to do it apart from him. No, we do well to always invite him along and help us examine our fruit and to see our progress. Yes, when we engage in Bible reading and prayer at home or on the Lord's Day, we do it. We are to do it in communion with him as our gracious husband. We make sure that he comes along. Sadly, as odd as it seems, we often forget him when we come to church or when we read our Bible at home. We look at the text. We think about what it means. We may even think of some application 
But we don't think, again, of responding to him. We need to change the way that we think about self-examination, about examining ourselves. It ought to be very exciting to have him come and explore the garden, which is our lives. Think of a little girl who's been working hard all day with painting, and she's been working on it at various times, and she's learned some things about painting, and she's worked very, very hard to paint a picture, and she excitedly calls her mother to come and see. Come and see. Come and examine what I have done. Sometimes we think of examination before the Lord as a very negative thing. Oh, he's going to come and check up on me, you know. But it can be exciting. It can be, when we're growing, it is exciting. When we're learning, when we're, when we're walking in communion with Him. He is not a harsh master. That's the attitude of the chap in the parable of the talents that said, you're a harsh and unreasonable master, so I hid my talent. No, we need to be like the others that said, here, Lord, I got your five and I gained five more for you. Come and see, Lord. Come and see what I did. I invested it. This is, this is what happened. Our husband takes delight in any progress that we have for him. As we've seen, he is very generous in his assessment of us. It is true that he often graciously helps us to see areas in our lives that need improvement. Of course he does. He's the Lord of glory. And we're sinners. But if we're eager to make progress, that is delightful to us too. Think of a woodworker. That's something near to me. A woodworker who speaks to a master craftsman who shows him how to make better dovetails or how to get a better finish on his tabletop. You don't come away from that kind of engagement defeated and cast down because, oh, I've been doing it wrong all these years. What am I going to do? I've been doing it all wrong. No, you come away invigorated. I learned how to do this better. I learned how to do it more efficiently. I learned how to do it more beautifully. I can improve. I got tips from the master. He was kind enough to come and, and show me how I can change and what I need to do. This is the kind of attitude that we have. We, we need to have, filled with delight and invigorated. Bringing Jesus to examine our fruit is, of course, a very fearful thing in that we respect him so much as the Lord of glory. We know that he is holy, and we know that there will be times when we'll be exposed in ways that are not flattering at all, even where there's raunchy attitudes and things like that that are, are dredged up that have been there all along that we're ashamed of but as we get to know him as our gracious savior as that he is we know that even those times are not to berate us he does that in order to help us at the appropriate time when we're ready to hear it he said to his disciples i have many things to say to you but you can't bear them now you know how it is when there's something wrong in you that you've not really been willing to face? I mean, do you know that? There's, there's something wrong in your life and you've been avoiding dealing with it. It's there, but you're just kind of, and you know it's not good and you're kind of half dealing with it, but you never really repent. What do I mean by that? You never get to the point where you say, this is just plainly disgusting. This is loathsome. I'm not doing this anymore i've got nothing to do with it like ephraim what do i have to do with idols anymore I, this is this is repulsive 
that real repentance that you get to. We don't want to go there. We, we hold, because we're cherishing our sin and we're, we're, we're holding on to it. And we're not really repenting. But there are those times when we come before the Lord. Maybe we hear a sermon. Maybe we're reading the Bible. Maybe whatever happens. And He speaks. And we realize and we come clean. Well, what is your attitude then? Is it, are you beat down by that? No. You're invigorated. I've been set free. I finally see this thing that... Is, I've been doing this disgusting behavior for all this time and making excuses and not really dealing with it. And now he has exposed it and he's made me clean. And I come away feeling emancipated, feeling like I'm set free. Not that I've been beat down or tied up somehow, but I've been liberated from that which I needed to be liberated from so that I can serve God. (coughs) We, We only avoid inviting him to examine our growth. We're only irritated by the thought of him examining us when we're not eager to grow, when we're not eager as his bride to be pleasing to him because we've got our eyes on something else. We, so, so the core is our relationship with him and then we're happy to come and have self-examination, to, to come before him and appear before his courts. We don't want to hide from any anymore. Make sure then that you're like the little girl who calls her mom, who's wanting to improve in her painting. Mom, come and look. Come and look at what I did here. And like the like the craftsman, the, the, the one with the craftsman. Jesus is our husband and we want to please him. We know that he wants to help us to please him. And so we're delighted to invite him. He's going to help us. He's not coming for another reason. He's coming to help us. We are glad not only that he will be pleased with what he sees of our growth, but also that, yeah, like that craftsman, he's going to He's going to show us the things so that we can be even more fruitful. I mean, do you want to have a a weak-looking flower garden? Or do you want to have one that's filled with beautiful flowers? Because the master, the master has been with you. You have his touch. Search me, you see, and try me and show me if there is any wicked way in me. Does it stop there? And lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we sang before. That's what it's all about. Now let's look at the fourth way that we respond to him. For didn't he tell us that he desired our love also? Indeed, does he then want to receive our love? He does. So we say, come away with me. And what? What does it say in the text? I will give you my love. Come away with me and I will give you my love. You see the promise at the end of verse 12. The words are there in the place where we get away. I will give you my love there in the place that we go apart together. Giving our love to him as a bride involves three things. We give him our love by taking and by expressing our delight in him, taking delight in him and expressing delight in him. Okay, you, you come and you see who he is and you express your delight. We won't get into it now. We, we give him our love, secondly, by yielding ourselves to him. And thirdly, we give him our love by presenting our offerings to him that we have prepared for him in advance for his pleasure. So let's look at each one of these. First, 
We give him our love by taking delight in him and expressing our delight in him. When we come apart with him and he with us, then he reveals himself through the word. Okay, what happens when he reveals himself through the word? Will we learn of his majesty and glory? For example, as the maker of heaven and earth, we stand in awe as we consider who he is. We learn of his wisdom and the way that he deals with his enemies, the way he deals with situations and manages the affairs of the world. We learn of his power. We learn that he dwells in inapproachable holiness and light that no one can can come near to him apart from his mercy. But the thing that is the most striking of all is his gracious saving work that he reveals to us when we come near. That he has taken us from the miry pit to be his wife. That he has redeemed us with his precious blood. Blood that he obtained by becoming flesh for the very purpose of dying for our sins. We give him our love then by responding in loving admiration and delight. A wife that loves loves her husband delights in him. She delights in what is she sees of him, what she learns of him. And he is altogether beautiful and excellent. So our appropriate response is a love of joy and delight in what we see of him, of admiration. We read the word with hearts that are moved when we learn of him and his works. We sing the word with hearts that are filled with praise that we are lifting up, praises that we're lifting up to him. Lord, you are great. How great is the Lord, however we sing it. We come to the table with hearts that are full of love for him who first loved us. As we consider what he has done with the bread and the wine, then we respond to him with with love to his love. Heartfelt adoration of him should be the hallmark of our worship. Not feelings that are stirred up by stories or by music or dancing, colorful ceremonies, not, not by colorful ceremonies and altars and glorious temples and priests decked in ornamental clothing and while incense fills the air and all these things, not moved by that. Those are the things of the Old Testament that we had when we were in the age of minority, when we were children, before we had come of age as a church. We had all of those ceremonies that that touch our, our senses and our flesh in that way. Those are the things of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it is Jesus himself and his saving work that has been revealed. That is what is to move us. The gospel of Jesus Christ thrills our souls when we come before him in new covenant worship. Those Old Testament expressions or New Testament innovations that we try to bring into our worship today are are not the worship that's called for, but rather hearts delighting in our Lord revealed through the gospel. We give him our love by adoring him as he has been revealed to us in the gospel of our salvation. And we must grow in this love. It's not like you have it all once you see it the first time. 
Paul prays that we would grow in the, our understanding of this love, of the depth and the height and the breadth and the width and the length of the love of Christ. We must not use artificial stimulants, but we find him in the simple, unadorned worship of the New Testament. And yes, it can be dry. You don't have a big performance. You don't have big ceremonies. You don't have all these things that fill the air and fill your senses. You're coming simply before him because the focus is to delight in him. And it's good that it's dry when your heart is dry toward him. Because in the other way, you can be filled with all kinds of emotion and excitement, but it's got nothing to do with him. The mandrakes in our garden, literally the love plant, gives off its fragrance to him. That is what is beautiful. It is our love flowing out to him that he delights in when we behold him and his majesty and beauty and his glory. Closely associated with that is the second way that we give him our love. We say, I will give you my love. Come apart with me and I will give you my love. What's the second way? We give him our love by yielding ourselves to him. I've already spoken of how both the good and the bad in us is exposed when, we, when he comes apart with us. That's one of the ways that you know that you've met with him when, when you have conviction of sin and when you also have encouragement from things that, you know, changes that have been made. You look back at your life and you see, I'm not the same as I was 10 years ago. I'm not the same as I was 20 years ago or however long. The word convicts you and encourages you and this conviction or exposure of your sin as well as the approval of your fruit makes you glad. You're glad, why? Because your greatest desire is to please him. And you realize that uh, each time you meet with him, you learn more of what pleases him. That's one of the things Paul prays, that we would understand what pleases the Lord so that we could walk in those things. And so what do you do then when you learn what pleases him? Well, if your whole desire is to please him, you yield yourself to those things that please him. You change for him. You say, Lord, I want to be pleasing to you. I'm going to change from this to this that you have shown me clearly. You find out what is pleasing and you give yourself to what is pleasing. Your love is shown by your eagerness to change, to conform to what he wants. You belong to him And your identity does not arise from your feelings, but from belonging to him. Your purpose is not to find your true self, the way the world talks, to find your true identity based on the desires of your flesh. That's what the world's trying to do. Got your sinful flesh, and I'm going to try to find out who I really am by looking at my desires and my passions and my dreams and all these kind of things, and then I'll know who who I really am. Well, that's not what you want. Your purpose is to glorify him with your life, to die to your own desires and, and your flesh in order to delight in doing the will of God. That is our identity. We went, go back to where we were before, verse 10. We belong to him. We, he, he possesses us. That's, this is what makes identity politics and the whole all that goes with it so wrong. It teaches you to follow your own heart of all things, to follow your sinful flesh. And to say, even when it gets Christianized, 
then they say, oh, these are your God-given desires that you have. For sinful things? God-given desires for sinful things? No, our flesh is wicked. We need to die to our sinful desires and to follow Christ. That Even very sinful desires said that. You show your love to your Savior who gave up his desires to save you. Even his desire to have unbroken communion with his heavenly Father, he had to give up. It was a holy desire. And he gave that up in order to go to the cross and bear our sin to become the shame, the object of shame and spitting for our sake. He loved you, so now you love him and find pleasure in giving yourself to him as a living sacrifice. And denying your flesh like that, it could even be like it was with him at times for something that is a good thing in itself. But it has to take its place before him. All is sacrificed to him. So, for example, Jesus says that if you're going to follow him, you have to hate your father and mother for his sake. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you turn in an angry, bitter way against your father and mother and hate them in that way. That's not the kind of thing it's talking about. It's saying that if your parents want you to do something that's contrary to the will of God, then you have to utterly reject what they want. Utterly reject them in that sense of what they want to do what he wants. You deny and your flesh wants to have relationship with your parents. That's actually a good thing to have a good want to have a good relationship. But you have to deny your flesh in that case, even a good thing, because it's contrary to God's calling. They don't want you to maybe go to a sound church or they don't want you to keep the Lord's day or they don't want whatever it is. It doesn't. He's the one we show our love to him when we come and worship and he shows us like maybe it is to keep the Lord's day. Oh, my parents aren't going to like that. Well, you hate your father and mother and you follow Christ or whatever it is. You've got desires, sinful desires. And you say, oh, well, these are my desires. I can't deny my desires. That's what you've got to do. You die with him. You die to yourself. Now the third thing. We give him our love by presenting our offerings to him that we have laid up and prepared for his pleasure. When we come apart with him in our worship, we are to bring prepared offerings for him. You see, there's that spontaneous thing of where we learn about him as we come to worship and we rejoice as the word convicts us and we examine the examination I was talking about, the delight in him, all of those things. But now we're looking at that which we have prepared beforehand, knowing that we're going to worship him. When we come apart with him in worship, then we're to bring our offerings there There is the offering of praise, which I have already spoken of in terms of delight in him. But it also includes coming before him with expressions of thanksgiving. Does the Bible not speak of bringing an offering of thanksgiving before the Lord? That's something you prepare ahead of time. You think of what God has done. And then you go, private worship, public worship, whatever, and thank him for what he has done. Sometimes the church will gather for a special time of thanksgiving. We come lifting up our prayers of particular thanks for what he has done, an offering prepared for him. Of course, the one thing that we always come to thank him for is what he has done for us on the cross. 
Then there is also the offering of service. Another offering we bring. We come apart to make vows of service to him. To say, Lord, I love you and I'm going to do thus and thus for you. We make commitment, obligations. Officers, when they become a man becomes an elder or a deacon, they take vows of office. They're consecrating themselves in love to him. Or parents, when they have a, a baby and they promise that they will bring the child up in the nurture and, and fear of the Lord. Or a husband who mar- and a wife, when they marry, they, they make promises before God to one another, promising service that is pleasing to the Lord. We make promises in our covenant of church membership, promises of service and promises of faithfulness. And then there is thirdly the offering of our material possessions when we come to worship. We bring our tithes and our offerings as an expression of our love to God. Perhaps like Barnabas, maybe, who sold land and presented it to the apostles to support his poor brothers and sisters at Jerusalem. How opposite was Ananias and his wife Sapphira? What did they do? They made also a donation to the church, but they did it to be seen by men. They did it exactly what Jesus says not to do. Barnabas did it out of love to God. This is done not in a begrudging way when we give offerings like that, but as an expression of our love to him. It's a very small thing to us to give when we love him who first loved us. These offerings that we bring to him for his pleasure are described very well as being laid up for him. All of these, the offering of thanksgiving and praise, the offering of service, and the offering of our material things. From the middle part of verse 13, we say, and at our gates, you see, this is our garden, and those are our gates around the garden, are pleasant fruits. All manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. So I have taken these prepared offerings. There's the stuff that's growing there that we, he comes and examines with me and sees the new growth and delights in that. There's also the ones, the offerings that I have prepared for him that are laid up, that are waiting for him. It's sort of like when uh, maybe a wife prepares a special meal for her husband, knowing that he will be delighted. She prepares it. She, she purposes to, to, to do this thing. She purposes to do what is pleasing to him. They're, they're not laid up for man to see, but they're laid up for him. Our thanksgiving, our service, and our, mutual, and our material offerings are for our beloved. You see, they're not for someone else. So today, we have seen the response of Jesus' bride to his expressed delight in her and his expressed desire to be with her. Knowing that he has redeemed her and that now he wants to be with her, she asked him to come apart with her. She asked him to examine her fruit with her that she has produced by his grace. And she asked him, or she tells him, that she will give him her love. She promises to give him her love when he comes apart with her. It is a beautiful relationship that is built on the love that the church has for her Savior. She still has much sin in her, but she also has a new heart so that she wants to live for him, knowing that by his saving work, she is fully cleansed from her sin and has cleansing for the sin that is even in her now. 
that his blood continues to cleanse her from all her sin. She is delighted to belong to him, and she does not want to belong to anyone else. Are you then a member of the bride of Jesus Christ? We have seen that she is one bride made up of many members. Are you a member of the bride of Christ? How do you get to be a member? You simply come to him and cast yourself on him saying, have mercy on me, a sinner, and he will both pardon you and transform you that you might become his also and take your place as a member among the bride. That is, our, that is the great blessing that any, all who come, he promises to receive. And see, then you have a whole new life to live as you ought to live for God rather than living for your flesh. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how, how thankful we are that there can be, that there is such a thing as a bride of Christ that's composed of men and women out of this sinful world. Men and women that you have redeemed out of this sinful world. Those who have come to you to receive the blessing of your grace as you are offered in the gospel to us. It is a remarkable thing that you go so far with us. It would be one thing to have us forgiven so that we wouldn't be punished like, like you promised to do when they worshiped the golden calf. But if you didn't go with us, if you, didn't, didn't, uh, if you kept yourself apart from us because they're so disgusting. But Father, we praise you that you don't do that. That as Moses interceded, that you were pleased to come and go with your bride. And we pray, Lord, that we would ask you to come and go with us. That you would come and inhabit our worship. That you would be pleased, O Lord, to visit us when we come to church, when we go to family worship, when we go to our private devotions and prayers, when we come to the Lord's table. We pray, Father, that you would come to us and that you would minister to us and that we would see your glory and that we would see what is in us that is pleasing and not pleasing to you and that we would be eager to put off the old and to put on the new and to do that which is pleasing to you. And may we come as we sing in Psalm 96 and bring an offering to you in beautiful and holy robes to come before you, O Lord, and present the offerings of thanksgiving and the offering of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to your name, and to come and present to you the, the uh, material offerings out of our produce to, to further your kingdom and to provide for your servants. And Father, may we come to to delight in you as our God. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the work that you have done in us. Please continue to visit with us because our relationship will not go well if you do not visit us, if you do not commune with us. Come with us, Lord, whenever we worship, whenever we gather, whenever we come apart from our, our regular routine or our regular activities in order to spend time with you, whether at the appointed times or at other times that are not appointed. We pray, O Lord, that you would be pleased with us and that we would be pleased with you. We ask that you would now bless us as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated.
It's well known to us that one of the things that we do at the Lord's table is that we examine ourselves. Paul mentions it expressly when he gives us the words of institution for the supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 28. He says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but when we looked at Mark, I showed you this, that Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples in the upper room, we can see that he actually led his disciples in examining themselves. You remember that first he taught them, he said, one of you will betray me. Oh, is it me? Is it me? They're all, all looking around and considering this. It was very, very heavy. This was as they were coming to the Lord's table. Where is it? And he led them in self-examination. And then at the, after the Lord's Supper, he said, you're all going to be scattered. You're all going to forsake me this very night. And uh, they were all bothered and disturbed by that. So coming before him, what happens? When you come before the God of glory, examination happens, exposure. You see things that are good, you see things that are not so good. That's what happens when we examine ourselves coming before the Lord's table. Um, both our progress and fruit, as well as our sins and deficiencies, are exposed when we come to remember Him as crucified for us. It's such a phenomenal thing to have such a glorious Savior and to be appearing before Him at this table. That it, it undoes us. It, it opens things up. We can't truly have communion with Him without that happening to a certain extent. You're going to see stuff about yourself. But as we saw today, if we are eager to please Jesus, our excellent, gracious husband, and if we know his gracious ways, our examination does not need to be a dreaded duty that we reluctantly slog through. Instead, it can be a delightful experience where we consider before him the progress that we have made in his grace and where, yes, we discover things that, that, we, that we can correct and all with a view to serving him better. Knowing what pleases him and knowing what doesn't. And this is not only for the Lord's Supper, is it? This is for all of our worship. But the Lord's Supper is a very con concentrated time of coming apart with him. See, we do that when we come to church. We come apart to meet with our Lord in the, in the assembly. But then in that assembly, coming to the Lord's table is a time when we come apart with him in an even more focused way. It's like the uh, coming apart, even as those who have already in that way, to, to, be, to be near to our Lord. And of course, the evaluation of our progress, or lack of progress, as the case may be, happens whenever we come apart to meet with Him. That's just one aspect. Examination is just one aspect what happens when we come before Him. As we've seen in previous weeks, and sometimes we've highlighted at the table in those previous weeks, He also reveals more of Himself to us when we come apart with Him. We learn of Him. You know, He shows us like what He's done. He shows, He gives us promises of His grace and, his, and the future that we have with Him. He shows us His gracious work, what it has done for us, 
He shows His love to us. That, that, that's shown so much at the Lord's table, isn't it? He, here's my body given for you. Here's my blood shed for the remission of your sins. He expresses His delight in us. But there is also this evaluation, this examination, this exposure that happens so that we can grow. We want to be nourished. We want to be changed. We want to see how we need to change. So this is what happens when we come before the Lord. So as we now look to commune with Him, let's listen to the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11 from 3 and following to the Apostle Paul. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, the guilty manner is to come before him and not come before him. In other words, to come before Him with your body and go through all the motions of eating and drinking and so on and have no communion with Him. To do it in a detached way, in a cold, indifferent way, not thinking of what He has done for us, not responding to who He is as the Lord of glory, the Holy One of Israel, but just coming in a a way of, of indifference toward Him as a person, a mechanical way, coming unworthily, um, he says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, not recognizing what is here. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. You are welcome to eat at this table if you are a communicant member of the standing of the faithful church. And if you are indeed trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation as you profess to do when you became a member of the standing of the faithful church. You should also be sure that you have repented of your sins and are looking to go forward with Jesus in your walk with Him as your Lord and Savior. In other words, that your desire is to please Him. Because you're coming here to say, Lord, I want to please You. I recognize what You have done for me, and I'm giving myself to You as You gave Yourself for me. So let's then ask Him to meet with us here, to visit us in this table. Gracious Lord, our Father in heaven, and Jesus Christ, your Son, we come before you now asking you, O Lord, to meet with us. We pray that you would visit us at the table. We pray, Lord, that we would respond to you with hearts of holy love and desire. May we delight in who you are. May we delight in what you have done. Here we have it set before us, your body broken, your blood shed, 
all for us through the remission of our sins, your great love for us, the great victory that you accomplished through your cross, pardon, complete pardon of our sins, new life, new hope, new beginning. We praise you, O Lord, for all that you have accomplished for us. O Lord, please visit us here, Lord, and may we go away as those who have been changed. Please, Lord, show us who you are, show us who we are, and bring us to you, O Lord, with joy and delight that we may continue our walk with you. Thank you so much for all that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The blessing of the Lord our God. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.